This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Henry Martin gazed out from the doorway of his general store on the banks of Florida's Lake Okeechobee. The hurricane had descended practically without warning, and just as suddenly, it stopped. A deep silence fell over the town of Belle Glade. Inside the store, Henry's family and other townspeople huddled together, unsure and afraid. They wondered if the silence meant the storm had passed. But as Henry squinted out into the darkness toward the lake, he saw something that made his blood run cold. Lake Okeechobee's shallow waters were lapping over the top of the man-made dike. Henry couldn't even consider what would happen if the earthen barrier broke. It had to hold, or the whole town could be annihilated. But then the wind screamed back to life in a sudden boom of fury. A dome of water tore through the dike and flooded into the town. There were screams of fear as the water approached. Henry rushed back inside, slamming the door as water began seeping through the floorboards. The hurricane had returned, and there was no escape. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Monday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on the Okeechobee Hurricane, a massive storm that ravaged the town of Belle Glade, Florida in 1928. Last week, we tracked the storm from its origins in the Atlantic as it tore a path of destruction through Puerto Rico and then surprised everyone by turning straight into south-central Florida. 
This week, we'll follow the hurricane as it unleashes its fury on the unprepared residents of Belle Glade. We'll also examine how the town struggled to recover in the storm's deadly wake. By 6.45 p.m. on September 16, 1928, the sun began to set over Florida, casting a gloomy, malevolent twilight over the towns below. Residents of West Palm Beach and Belle Glade crowded around their radios, waiting for news about the storm. Was it really coming for them? Or was it going to pass by them like predicted? As they huddled together, they listened to the noises coming from outside, The rains were pounding on the roof with uncommon force. The winds were picking up speed. And as the eye of the hurricane approached, they shifted direction, pointing westward towards Lake Okeechobee. As the water was driven against the dike, it began to pile on itself. Soon, a 12-foot high dome of water loomed above the five-foot barrier. 42-year-old Henry Martin had convinced himself the dike would hold. He had lived in Florida all his life and had weathered many storms before, including the 1926 Miami hurricane. His farmland and his family had survived those storms. They would get through this one too. But things were different this time. The lake was already full to the brim from a wet summer. And though the dike was newly built, it wasn't as secure as everyone thought. As the wind and rain pounded the store's walls and lightning crackled through the air, The morale inside was understandably low. But even though things were looking grim, Henry didn't give up hope. It was his responsibility to protect his family and everyone who had come to his store for shelter. And the store was also more than four walls protecting them from the hurricane's fury. It was a major part of Henry's livelihood. A little rain and wind couldn't possibly be enough to destroy everything he'd built. However, the hurricane was determined to try. The cold rain was falling in sheets, each drop like a tiny bullet in the 150 mile per hour wind. The streets were full of water and debris. The drainage pumps installed around town were useless. With the streets and canals already flooded, there was nowhere for the water to be pumped away. At this point, there was nothing anyone could do but wait it out. It was too late to flee, Too late to do anything but hope. And then, the wind suddenly stopped. An eerie quiet filled the air. Henry cautiously opened the store's front door. Outside, he was greeted not just by darkness, but by complete blackness. Dark clouds swirled in the sky while the ground was covered in churning, debris-filled black waters. Through the bleak curtain, Henry could see bits of warm, glowing light in the distance, kerosene lamps on the windows of the other buildings in town. It gave Henry an odd sense of hope. People were still able to keep the lights shining, even through all this chaos. But soon, the lights would be extinguished. The brimming power of the lake was itching to be unleashed, and Belle Glade was directly in its path. Around 8 p.m., The wind roared back to life. Water finally cascaded over the dike and surged down the street. Blocks away, Belle Glade's mayor, Walter Greer, was sheltering in his small wooden house. 
He had invited other townspeople to take cover there too. It looked solid enough to weather the storm, but as the winds resumed, the house shook violently. It seemed like walls could give way at any moment. Walter was caught between a rock and a hard place. They could either risk staying in his rickety house or go out into the storm to seek better shelter. Staying in the house meant all but certain death. If they went out, they might die, but they also might find a place where they could survive. Walter ordered everyone to grab a partner and to make their way to the nearby Glades Hotel as fast as they could. Everyone did as they were told. Once they'd all made it through the rain and wind into the safety of the hotel's sturdy walls, Walter hugged his wife tightly, happy they were safe. But then he realized they hadn't all made it. His young daughter Georgia and her friend Bonnie were missing. Walter panicked. It was pitch black outside and the water was rising, but he had to find his daughter. Gathering his courage, he stepped back out into the dark tempest. Down the street, a forceful gale had ripped off the roof of a drugstore, pinning it against another building. Walter thought the young girls might be trapped beneath the debris. He sloshed through the knee-deep water, straining against the wind. The blasts were so powerful that he was knocked off his feet, but he kept going, crawling through the water on his hands and knees. He finally reached the roof and lifted it up, but the girls were nowhere to be found. Heartbroken, Walter half crawled his way back to the hotel, scuffing his elbows and knees in the process. When he arrived back at the hotel, Walter's wife refused to believe her daughter was dead. There was another hotel across the street. Maybe she had gone there by mistake. Once again, Walter ventured out into the tempest. The dark, murky water was even higher. The wind was even fiercer. But somehow, he made it across the street. The difficult journey was worth it. Sure enough, Georgia was there, perfectly safe. But their reunion was all too brief. Walter had to get back to the Glades Hotel to tell his wife that Georgia was all right. With the storm growing worse by the minute, he couldn't risk taking his daughter with him. Returning outside for the fourth time, Walter managed to make it back to the Glades Hotel. His return didn't come a moment too soon. Within a few minutes, Belle Glades Main Street transformed into a raging, violent river. By 8.10 p.m., a storm surge had formed on the lake. With a pounding, malevolent fury, it finally broke through the dike. The massive wave cascaded into the center of town. If Walter had decided to stay in his house, his family and everyone else would have been lost to the flood. The water blasted against everything in its path, creating a swirl of debris. The water was so high it reached the attics. Anyone still sheltering in their homes would be trapped inside. The violent weather even caused some buildings to rise up off their foundations and slam back down into the cement. It seemed inevitable that the same would happen to Henry Martin's store as the dampened floorboard started to buckle under the hurricane's pressure. Somehow, the store remained on its foundations, but the danger wasn't over yet. The water was still rising. Henry rushed to his wife, Bessie May. They had to get to higher ground. Clutching onto their toddler, Henry and Bessie May climbed onto the countertops. 
they pulled their other children up with them. Twelve-year-old Thelma cowered in terror. She hated the water and wasn't a good swimmer. But there was little Henry could do for his daughter. He could only watch in despair as his cherished store flooded. Everything he had painstakingly worked for was carried away by the storm. Except for his family. They were still alive. And staying alive was all that mattered now. As the waters kept rising, Henry put a table on top of the counter and opened up a trap door to the attic. He helped Bessie May up and passed her the children one by one. He struggled to get all eight of their children to safety as the water rose higher and higher. In a final chilling moment, a hiss filled the air. All of the kerosene lamps puffed out. Henry hoisted himself up and reached out for his wife in the darkness. They'd made it. The family huddled together, relieved for a brief moment. But the wind picked up again, louder than ever. The building groaned under the pressure. The water was reaching the attic. The store swayed underneath them. Moments later, a giant crack resounded over the wind and rain. The building was completely lifted off its foundation. Unmoored from its base, the store was carried down the rushing waters like a child's plaything. And it was headed directly toward the Methodist Church. Coming up, the hurricane continues to ravage the town of Belle Glade. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. The Great Okeechobee Hurricane of 1928 had arrived, and with it, untold destruction. The trusted dike safeguarding the town from flooding had broken, sending waters surging toward the town of Belle Glade. The power of the flood forced Henry Martin's store off its foundations, sending it careening straight toward the town's Methodist church. The Martin children held tight onto their parents. With a loud crash, the incoming store pushed the church off its foundation. The impact caused the store to turn over onto its side and then completely upside down. Everyone flew down into the water. They were trapped underneath the falling walls as the building broke apart. Henry tried to hold on to his children, but the force of the impact had separated them. As he flew off the roof, his daughter Ernestine was ripped out of his arms and dragged deep underwater. She kicked against the current and struggled up for air. Fighting against the tide, she pushed her way toward a stump where her sister Thelma was struggling to stay afloat. Twelve-year-old Thelma's worst fear was coming true. She was terrified of drowning, and now her fate seemed all but certain. The rushing water forced both girls against the stump, pressing them with such strength that Thelma fell in and out of consciousness. She tried to climb above the current, but she was stuck. Her leg was caught in the roots of the tree. As the water lapped around her neck, Thelma tried to free her leg, but upon reaching down, she felt something else. It was Robert, her two-year-old brother. 
Somehow, he was still alive. Thelma couldn't believe it. She brought him up out of the water and held him in her hands above her head. Despite the rising waters and her excruciating pain, she had to keep baby Robert alive. She refused to give up. But her balance was thrown off by a sudden stabbing pain in her leg. A wooden board with protruding spikes had lodged into her thigh. The pain was immeasurable. She still managed to hold her brother above her head, but no matter how determined she was, she couldn't keep it up forever. Luckily, her sister was there to help. When Thelma got too tired, Ernestine took Robert and held him above her head. All the while, the water continued to press against them in beating waves. Each time a surge hit, Ernestine and Thelma's grips were weakened, but they refused to let go of the tree stump. Their lives depended on it. All across Belle Glade, other houses, stores, and buildings were wrenched into the water, floating down the newly formed rivers at unbelievable speeds. The debris in the dark water created even more danger. Nails, spikes, and metal were carried through the flooded streets, threatening to take the life of anyone who was unlucky enough to get in the way. But around 9.45 p.m., Belglade was given a momentary reprieve. The eye of the storm arrived over the town. There was a sudden stop to the wind and rain. The air pressure dropped so low that some survivors passed out from oxygen deprivation. At 9.45 p.m., the barometric pressure was recorded at 27.82 inches, one of the lowest readings ever recorded. It was a sign of even more terrifying things to come. As the eye moved past Belle Glade, surging waters blasted through the streets again. Lightning flashed across the sky, lighting up the wreckage below. The wind had shifted direction again and was so powerful that it had some of the highest wind speeds ever measured. Henry Martin was still struggling in the water, separated from his family. Flailing in the darkness, he found his son, Sonny, and placed him onto a piece of the store's former roof. Hanging onto the side, Henry called out for his wife, Bessie May. She didn't answer. As Henry struggled against the current, a jagged beam flew out of the night and hit him in the head. He was knocked underwater and almost blacked out. But he fought back and kicked himself up to the surface, gasping for air. As he hauled himself up onto the piece of roof, he felt someone grab onto his leg. It was one of his little boys, Raymond. Henry, Raymond, and Sonny held tightly to the roof piece as it spun through the water. Only the lightning strikes gave them any semblance of where they were in the darkness. Whenever a lightning bolt illuminated the sky, Henry scanned the distance and cried out for Bessie May, but he never got an answer. At least Henry could protect Raymond and Sonny, but there was only so much he could do. The whipping waters sent a piece of nail-studded wood straight at Sonny, and one of the nails speared him in the chest. Without thinking, Henry grabbed the board and yanked it away. He held Sonny close to his body, trembling. Moments later, a wave crashed over their makeshift raft, sending all three underwater. Henry didn't let go of Sonny, 
But when he came to the surface, his other son, Raymond, was drifting down the tide. Before Henry could even think about rescuing his son, a piece of debris slammed into Raymond's head. He disappeared down into the black waters. Henry felt his grasp on Sonny loosening, but he promised himself no matter what, he wouldn't let go. He couldn't lose another son. They swirled around in the water until they rolled past a sturdy, upright telephone pole. Henry locked his arms and legs around it and clutched tight to Sonny. He would stay like that for the rest of the night if he had to. By now, the waters in Belle Glade were averaging 15 feet high. The town was in pieces. Henry was certain the rest of his family was dead by now. He gave up on looking and just held on against the pounding floodwaters. The minutes passed like hours. But eventually, the hurricane moved on. As the storm weakened, it was still too dark to see the damage. It wasn't until the first vestiges of dawn arrived on September 17, 1928, that the true gravity of what had happened was revealed. When we come back, the survivors try to piece together what's left of their lives in the hurricane's aftermath. Now, back to the story. In the early morning of September 17, 1928, the storm in Belle Glade finally abated. As the rain let up and the wind turned to a whisper, dawn light started to stream through the pale gray clouds. The choppy, rushing waves had settled down into their new home along the ruins of the town. The horizon was flat and blank. Trees were gone. Buildings had disappeared. It was as if someone had wiped the land clear, replacing it with dark, debris-filled water. After he and his family were tossed into the ravaging waters, Henry Martin had managed to grip onto a telephone pole all night. As dawn set in and the waters receded, he and Sonny climbed down from the pole. Their entire lives had been destroyed in the course of a single night. Sonny needed immediate medical treatment. The waters had stripped his clothes away, and he had two holes in his chest where a piece of wood had punctured him. Henry himself had a gash above the eye and a sprained foot. But the raging torrent had carried them three miles out of town. As they stumbled back to what remained of their home, Henry spotted the ruined dike in the distance. Pieces of it still stood, but most of the barrier had totally fallen away. The scope of the destruction was beyond anything Henry could have imagined. Trees were twisted and bent. Wires, fences, and walls were piled up alongside the dike. But worst of all were the bodies, cattle, horses, and people. There were hundreds of corpses strewn across the landscape, too many to count. Henry shielded his son's eyes, but he had to look. He had to know if Bessie May or one of the other children were among the dead. As he examined each body, Henry almost collapsed from exhaustion and revulsion. But none of them were his family members. They kept walking onward through the wreckage that used to be Belle Glade. Somehow, Lawrence Will, the local gas station owner, had made it through the night. As he sloshed through the knee-high water, he surveyed the damage in disbelief. Everything else was in ruins. 
It was as if Mother Nature had taken the town and shaken it violently in her palms. Among the rubble, Lawrence spotted a pair of dead bodies. They were two of Henry and Bessie May Martin's children, Raymond and Minnie Lucy. Lawrence brought the bodies to the makeshift morgue that was forming in the Glades Hotel, one of the few buildings still standing. Then he went back out to continue the search for survivors. He spotted an uprooted tree, and then three more of the Martin children. And these ones were alive. Ernestine and Thelma Martin were still clinging to the stump, holding on to their little brother Robert. Even with kind-hearted people like Lawrence aiding in the cleanup effort, it was going to be an incredibly difficult process. Gasoline and overflowing sewage had mixed with the water flooding the streets. Food was scarce, and clean water was even more rare. At first, the corpses that could be recovered were laid out face up in the Glades Hotel, but they quickly ran out of room, and they couldn't bury the bodies because the ground was still covered in water. This presented another problem. The thousands of decaying corpses still floating around town would rot if nothing was done with them, and disease would spread through the waters. On top of all this, there was no means of communication or transportation out of town. The power was out, the telephone lines were down, all the roads were flooded and blocked. No one had working radios, it was impossible to call for help. When Henry and Sonny Martin finally arrived at the Glades Hotel, Henry told the doctor to do his best for his last remaining son. He was sure the others were all dead. But the doctor gave him wonderful news. Ernestine, Thelma, and Robert were there and alive. The world seemed to momentarily stop for Henry. He fought back tears before racing upstairs to hug his three kids. They were just as happy to see him. But the joy was only temporary. The doctor told Henry that Raymond and Minnie Lucy didn't make it. As for Bessie May and the other children, no one had seen them. All over town, people were wandering through the debris, calling out for lost loved ones. Henry joined them in sifting through the wreckage. It took two days, but he eventually found his eldest daughter, Annie May. She had also been thrown from the store when it crashed into the church. She was carried two miles from town, but found refuge underneath a houseboat. This was Henry's last happy reunion. His wife, Bessie May, was never found. Neither was his brother, Loney, whose farm and family had completely vanished, never to be found again. Over the next few days, the search for survivors became hopeless. As decay set in, the bloated bodies were indistinguishable from one another. Eyewitness Lawrence Will described the situation as follows. The corpses were heaped in huge piles, spread-eagled like giant ginger cookies, eyes, tongues, and entrails protruding, the skin of their hands sloughed off and hanging from the wrists like opera gloves. After the first few days, black and white were indistinguishable. All had lost their skin. When a body couldn't be identified, it was dumped into a field with other corpses and burned. And when they could be identified, the era's racism only caused more problems. Black bodies weren't allowed to be buried in most of the area's cemeteries. So instead, 
they were sent to incinerators and buried without grave markers. Even in the height of disaster, some people couldn't set aside their prejudices. It showed an ugly edge to the already tense recovery effort. Belle Glade was never the same after the 1928 hurricane. What was once a booming hotspot for opportunistic farmers had become a place of destruction, disease, and death. Nearly 2,000 people were reported dead in the county, and many more were missing or thrown into mass graves. The official death toll was one of the largest ever reported from a hurricane at that time, and the true number of casualties might not ever be known. The remaining Martin family members all recovered physically, but their emotional wounds would prove more difficult. Ernestine and Thelma refused to ever speak about their experiences until interviews 70 years later, and Henry would never stop looking for Bessie May. The scars would linger for the rest of the town as well, but once the debris was finally cleared, the residents of Belle Glade found a way to move forward. In 1930, the River and Harbors Act approved the construction of a new 40-foot-high dike. The new barrier would ensure that Lake Okeechobee could never again wreak so much destruction. Today, the dike is still continually monitored and serviced. The farmland around Okeechobee is once again a haven of opportunity, particularly for sugarcane. Florida is lovingly referred to as America's winter breadbasket. Despite these new regulations and precautions, the people of Lake Okeechobee would be remiss to ever forget about what happened in 1928. No matter how confident we may be in our ability to withstand Mother Nature's wrath, even the best laid plans can go awry. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. In addition to the many sources we used, we found Killer Kane by Robert Michael extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Natural Disasters for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Ben Fleck, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard. <laughs>